welcome to Recess Tonight. It's uh, Alan flying solo, only half of Recess Tonight. Rob is off being Rob. But <laughs> boy, am I stoked right now. I am not alone. I've got Sarah from Washington State, who is a, an ICU nurse. Uh, and she's come on to the, she's graciously come on the show to come talk about her experience during this COVID experience. Sarah, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, guys. I'm a critical care nurse outside of Seattle. And uh, let's see, work in a medical ICU, 28 beds. I've got two years of critical care experience. When I'm not nursing, I am stand-up paddleboarding, knitting, uh, <laughs> trying to finish my BSN degree and figure out the grad school thing. You know, I got to tell you, my wife's gotten into knitting and there's like this, <laughs> there's an underground club of knitters and they like knit, they talk about the world, they have nice. great wine. Like I want to get on on this club. Yeah. So hot right now, the quarantine knitting. <laughs> That's perfect. So, so tonight we're coming from the Pacific Northwest in the United States, and we're in this time where the uh, COVID um, pandemic, and it's actually been building steam in Washington State, eh? Yeah. So my facility actually had that patient. It was a big to-do because he was isolated in a biocontainment unit. It was treated almost like an Ebola-type extremely contagious scenario <laughs> and and he was treated successfully eventually sent back out into the community and then everything was quiet for many weeks and i think most of us assumed that that would be the last we hear of it that this thing would kind of die off in china and then suddenly out of the blue toward the end of right at the end of february going into march um we started getting cases coming into the er and just overnight, the hospital flipped. They, you know, flipped a switch on this floor um, biocontainment unit that could be all negative pressure rooms. They wrote all these policies really quickly and kind of got up and running. And things have been in flux really quickly since then. Yeah, absolutely. It's really taken the world's. Yeah. Uh, attention. Uh, I don't think there's a country that's been uh, hasn't been affected uh, today on the podcast. Though uh, we because this is in North America, we really haven't seen too many of the uh, ICU cases yet. We've seen a lot of the um, swab go home or the uh, the worried well, which is good. Mm -hmm. But we would love to hear um, of what your experience is like caring for the sick COVID patient in the ICU. Yeah. Um so we've had patients in the ICU now for two and a half, three weeks. It started with just a handful and it's now up to, you know, more than a dozen. And we've got rule outs and then confirmed positives. We're testing as quickly as we can. Um, some of what I know is from what I've seen firsthand and some is from what I'm talking to coworkers about and also reading online. But what we've seen firsthand is a wide range of ages, um, you know, from 30s up to 70s, 80s, that are all presenting uh, with the shortness of breath, 
but nothing with uh, like a hypoxia, hypoxemia that does not correlate with, you know, the shortness of breath that they're feeling. So they're much more hypoxic than you would think. And, um, they get worse much quickly, much, much more quickly than the typical like flu arts presentation. And we're definitely intubating them early given that we are not doing BiPAP or high flow nasal cannula. So the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is off the table with the concern of not aerosolizing the virus and further exposing healthcare personnel. And it seems like that's kind of in line with what providers are doing across the country and worldwide. So we're intubating early, lining them, and many of them are ending up paralyzed for a number of days. We're having a lot of difficulty weaning paralytics. Um, We did try to prone one patient, and it did not go very well. Um, They did not tolerate it hemodynamically, and we kind of quickly had to flip them back. It was a gnarly situation. Uh, the vent circuit popped off. A lot of staff got exposed. And I think we're kind of thinking really closely, thinking hard about whether we would attempt to prone again. I know that they're doing a lot of that in Italy and they did in China. But logistically, it's really hard, especially in the face of having such limited PPE uh, available and needing to really cluster cares and minimize how often we're going in the room. The level of intensity of nursing care, listeners probably know, is much higher when that patient is prone. You're needing to reposition them frequently and check things frequently. Um, Let's see. So... So just to jump in here, Sarah, yeah. for our listeners who are eMERGE or non um, <laughs> have not worked in the ICU, right. proning is essentially uh, having nursing the patient on their stomach. Mm-hmm. So they're um, so it's almost like you're at the RMT and you've got that little donut ish thing where you're kind of like breathing through. It's kind of right. like that ish, uh, but you're being nursed that way. And typically it's done to recruit uh, alveoli and it facilitates secretion drainage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, I just read a paper where Italy is trying to prone folks that are still on six liters of nasal prong. Yes, I read yes. that one. We were all cracking up about that in the ICU, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> like it was some kind of a joke almost because usually you're proning because of a, you know, severe shunting VQ mismatch. You're trying to help oxygenate areas of the lung that aren't really draining, getting oxygenated. So it, it kind of blows my mind that they're doing that. People are not on the vent. Um, Speaking of these sick, sick COVIDs in the ICU, um, tell us about, the ventilation strategies that you use with the ventilator? Is it traditional ARDSnet or are you modifying it a bit? Yeah, no. So we do assist control mode. That's kind of the trend on this coast. And then we're pretty much using the ARDSnet peep ladder um, at, until now. So we, I've kind of advocated to go to some APRV. I've seen some papers talking about benefit from that, but providers are pretty unwilling to do that. 
the one intensivist told me, well, if they're sick enough to need APRV, what is even the point <laughs> based on the mortality rates we're seeing mm. with mechanically ventilated oh, did- um, COVID patients? What's the estimated mortality um, for folks that are mechanically ventilated? Um, I don't know if speaking to what we're seeing in our ICU is going to be the most accurate because we have such a small N number so far. Um, Papers that I'm seeing are estimating anywhere from 70 to 97% of COVID patients that end up mechanically ventilated are... not making it, which is wild. You know, I mean, ARDS is high mortality already, but this is a different level. It's much, much more dangerous. Oh, it's heartbreaking seeing, uh, seeing this. Yeah. And providers are seeing that and being more proactive about talking to families about DNR status right off the bat, because, you know, if it's a respiratory failure that's causing their arrest, there's such a small, you know, chance of any kind of benefit from coding them. And we've had, I think, two codes now with positive patients, and each time has been just kind of disastrous. It's really hard to get people in there in correct PPE um, and to keep staff safe. And both times, like, door has been held open people get popped off the vent circuit and bagged, which just spreads the virus around the room. So we've been, you know, working on that protocol, but also trying, you know, to minimize the amount of times we have to do that. If it's not really, if there's no measurable benefit and we're now doing a policy of no bagging at all in this patient population. If we have to code them, they stay on the vent and, you know, that's it. You can, do some inspiratory holds in lieu of bagging or what have mm-hmm. you, but it's just safety for the staff has to come first in that case. And what other challenges um, does your, do you and your team face uh, from a clinical angle? Um, I think providing the care that we'd like to, that we're used to providing within the constraints of, you know, now being told we need to really stringently limit the amount of times we're going into and out of the room to conserve PPE. I mentioned that earlier, but that's a huge issue at hospitals in the States. I don't know about Canada, but, you know, we've gone to this like lean just in time distribution system and it's crumbling right now. Nurses I've talked to all over the country are, you know, really, really scared about the lack of you know, PPE or the fact that we're running through our stockpiles really quickly and we still have to make it however more, many more weeks and months to get through this thing. Um, so that's a concern clinically providing the care while keeping the members of the team safe. You know, we're trying to minimize the amount that doctors and RTs lab, everybody goes into the room. So in our facility, Nurses have been just learning phlebotomy on the fly, doing our own lab draws if the patient doesn't have a line. We're learning to do some of the RT um, tasks like measuring peak inspiratory pressure, measuring the plateau pressures. Um, And often, more often than not, the providers aren't going into the room unless they absolutely need to, like they are intubating or lining. 
they're just talking through the assessment with the RN outside the room. Um, so that's kind of a unique challenge in and of itself, um, having to work together like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, these patients are so sick and as nurses, we want to help and we mm-hmm. want to be able to be in there with them. And that's how we define ourselves. So, but given the yeah. virulence yeah, and the, uh, sure. yeah, and the, it, it can be quite uh, distressing. What, mm-hmm. uh, if, um, what advice do you have to pass on to other uh, nurses that are listening in? Um, well, prepare yourself because it's going to be in every part of the country. This is very, very real. Um, do what, do what you need to do in your personal life so you can really, you know, focus on work and being there a hundred percent, do what you need to like get a self-care routine in place to help manage your stress levels. Um, be aware that you will probably have to advocate really proactively for yourself and your colleagues to get what you need to feel safe because administration management may not understand the reality on the ground. Um, and then take time now to review things like ArtsNet, um, some of the papers that are coming out, protocols. I know resources that have been really helpful for me are uh, UW Medical Center has a whole page of freely available policies and procedures that they're updating constantly. And I can give you that link. Um, and then also Nicole Kupchik, who's a clinical nurse specialist in the Seattle area, has been doing Instagram lives every day this week, talking to experts on ventilation, experts on proning, lots of really awesome critical care resources. A lot of folks actually on social media have been doing special live things, kind of sharing knowledge as we get it. And um, yeah, reach out to your colleagues for support. We have to be there for one another. And we're going to get through this. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like we're going to get through this and we have to get through this together. For sure. Yeah, so uh, that means don't hoard toilet paper, (laughs) y'all. Donate it to the nurses in your life. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sarah. I I really appreciate um, you sharing the the wins and the losses um, because those are the ones that we carry. Um, And thank you for thank you for your service to to your patients and your community. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's it for recess tonight. 